church. So thank you, thank you, thank you. It's great to be here. And I, I'm also partial to this neck of the woods of Military Town, USA. Um, so my, my parents brought me here in 1985. We came from Amarillo, Texas, and said, let's move to the hills of San Antonio area. So we've grown up here. This is my neighborhood, so it's good to speak to my neighbors today. Uh, my wife teaches in this neighborhood. She's a teacher at Kruger Elementary School, been there since it opened. So uh, if she looks familiar, she probably taught your kids or you. And my son is a junior at O'Connor. Cooper is there, and we just saw my boy yesterday up at College Station. He's at A&M, so I knew that would happen. If I mention A&M, there's got to be a whoop somewhere, right? <laughs> so neighbors, we're in the Gospel of John. And before I get to the passage we're going to study in John chapter 19, I want to go to John chapter 5. Red-letter words in my Bible, these are words of Jesus. See what Jesus says. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from life to death. Now, as we read that passage, there's one of the words, especially, it's got a little grit to it. It's got a little teeth. If you could pick that word out, starts with a J, ends in an judgment. That's a word that makes us recoil a little bit going, is he really, he's a guest preacher. Is he going to preach about judgment? Yes, because that's the passage that Pastor Cliff assigned to me. But it begs a crucial question about like, where do we sit in relation to God's judgment? And then a crucial question I want us to ask of ourselves is, if we're honest and brave enough, could we just ask ourselves, are we, are we judgmental to other people? And maybe God will illuminate some ways in your life that you really are that you didn't even know about. Preparing for the sermon has ripped me apart this week because I've been painfully aware of ways I'm judgmental that I didn't even know I was. So, this sermon now is simply a shovel. I'm going to bring the verses, bring some insights. The shovel now is going to be in your hands. It's up to you to keep digging. So if we have more questions at the end of our time today, good. Keep studying. Take that time to dig deeper into God's Word and let God's Word get into you. Now, recap. As you're opening your Bibles to John chapter 19, we're looking at verses 12 through 16. Recap of where you've been recently. Let's set the scene. Jesus has been arrested He's absolutely innocent, but he finds himself before the, the Roman governor, Pilate. Pontius Pilate has the power to execute or to set him free. But there's an angry mob of ridiculous religious rulers. The Jewish leaders of that time are saying, we don't want Jesus free. We want to see him crucified. And so now Pilate's in kind of a, a crucial situation here. He's got a conflicted conscience. He sees that Jesus is innocent. There's no reason that this man should go to the cross. His wife even came to speak advice to him from the judge's seat. Pilate's on the judge's seat, and his wife says, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered greatly because of a dream. And that's the scene we find ourselves in right now. Are you ready? John chapter 19. Starting in verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, and he sat on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. 
We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Let's pray together, church. Father, as we read your word, this is heavy. What will you do? What will we do because of what you've done? As you gave us your son and he gave us his life. We open your word right now and we ask that you would open up our hearts, that we would receive you and know you, that you would take away any distractions from our minds. You would, you would wipe off any of the smudges of judgment that would cloud our vision. We would know you, see you, just you, and follow you. In Jesus' name, the church says amen. Amen. So John chapter 19 and verse 13 is really, I think, the, the crux of where I want to be today. It says, when Pilate heard this, he heard all the accusations, he brought Jesus out, and he sat in the judge's seat. It's curious, have you ever been in a courtroom? You ever been where there's a judge's seat? If you've ever served like jury duty or, or spent some time in the courtroom, those, those benches, are, they're, they're not comfortable. <laughs> and if you sit there for hours, they get really uncomfortable. So what if you walked in the courtroom and you bypassed all of the uncomfortable wooden benches and you had the audacity to take the assertiveness to go sit in the judge's seat? You know, it's, it's, it's up there. It's got a good commanding view of the whole room. It's comfy. It's leather. <laughs> but only one person gets to sit in the judge's seat. The judge. It's about curiosity. Are there any, any people in the room that, that serve as a judge? You are a judge? So that's your profession? No one? No one admits it or no one is? Okay. 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 Okay, thank you. Yeah, so we had one judge. We had one. But I have a feeling, even though you don't sit in a judge's seat as a profession, um, just out of curiosity, show of hands, honesty, uh, have you ever been judgmental? <laughs> you think that's, we're batting a thousand. I think we're, we're solid there. Got a room full of judgmental people. We got some more. Why are you laughing? <laughs> no, because it's true. And because we know that we have a God who loves us, who saves, and he gives hope to judgmental people. So we've been judgmental. And if we're reflecting a little bit about where we've been judgmental, I'd be curious to get a little crowd response. Where do we find ourselves most, most often passing uh, judgment on other people? I'll start. Um, I did it on the way here today. I only drove a mile. I live a mile from here. But in a mile, from here and there, uh, I judge some of the construction that's being done on Bandera right now. And I judge, I judge the people who designed the construction. Um, that was just in a mile. So that's me. Uh, where else? Where do we tend to judge? Other drivers, yeah. HEB, I was, uh, someone, I think I heard HEB, especially the, the express checkout line. And they got more than 15 items. Where else? Oh, you got some insights. Where else do we find ourselves passing judgment on others? Our teachers? Yeah. You're just mumbling. Just say it loud. Come on. Oh, politically. Woo! Not touching that one, but I agree with you. Um, yeah, yeah, we judge our, we judge our, our, our leaders, judge presidents. The Texas education system? Oh, health system. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of places that we would, we would find ourselves passing judgment. Fa you're going to get together with family over Thanksgiving. 
that's going to be an interesting table, is it not? You're going to pass judgment on a cousin. You can't believe they voted for, or they can't believe they're going to. We're going to pass judgment. Online, in line, wherever, we find ourselves just ripe with all kinds of opportunities to pass judgment on other people. And now, let's just confession for me. I didn't think I was that judgmental until I started looking at, I judge other people based on how judgmental they are. Isn't that ridiculous? At least I'm not as judgmental as you, so I judge you. And then when I thought further into my life, most of my judgmentalism comes um, in the form of just joking. I judge, but it's in the disguise. I was just making a joke. I was just making an observation about the guy's teeth, you know, like, and I find myself going, I was trying to be funny, but in reality, I was passing judgment. And why it becomes more dangerous is I think about at the root of judgments, at the very root and why it's so dangerous is because judgment at its very core sounds a lot like, I think I'm better than you. Ouch. If you can't say amen, you say ouch. So the root of our judgment is a prideful heart, a prideful heart that says, I think I'm better than you. And so we find people in this passage, before Pontius Pilate, asking for the crucifixion of Jesus because they said, our way is better. We think we're better than him. We don't want the righteousness of God. We just want the right to be right. And Jesus is messing with our way, our status. And so away with him, away with him, they shouted. They did not want God's righteousness. They just wanted their own rights. And so they go before Caesar and they play this card, the let me speak to your manager card, basically. They're saying, hey, if you... Pontius Pilate, you've been given jurisdiction over Jerusalem, and if you don't do something about Jesus, we're going to go to the manager. We're going to play, we're going to go say Caesar, and if, if you don't take care of Jesus, we're going to make sure that Caesar gets you fired. That's basically what these religious, ridiculous rulers are doing, because they don't want Jesus. They pass judgment on Jesus. We have a name for people like this, holier than thou. Words never spoken as a compliment. And God has a special place for holier-than-thou people. Jesus spoke often to the, he called them hypocrites, or you brood of vipers. And if it wasn't for people like Nicodemus and the Apostle Paul, I would just think maybe there's no hope for us if we're judgmental. We've gone too far. But Jesus does something to one of the, one of the greatest captains of the holier-than-thou movement is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was so deeply against Jesus, and anyone that followed his way, he made it his life's mission to have them imprisoned, have them taken away. They cannot threaten our way of life, so Paul was on a seek and destroy mission, but God did something for him, right? He peeled back the smudges of judgment that clouded his vision, and he gave him new sight, pipe knocking him down and blinding him, but then speaking, Paul, Paul, actually his name was Saul then, Saul, Saul, do you even know what you're doing? Do you even know who you're persecuting? Do you even know how deep the poison of your judgment is gone? And so I want to go to the book of Romans for a second here. Romans chapter 2. I'll have it on the screen. An expert in being a judge speaks this to the church in Rome. 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, says, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Remember, Paul is speaking from experience here. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, Romans 2, verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? There was a Barna study recently. 62% of lapsed Christians said the number one quality they look for in someone to have conversations about their faith, the number one thing they're looking for is non-judgment. But only 34% of those who have been lapsed from the church said they knew of anyone that had that quality. So the church is in a, a wrong business if it makes more judges than it makes disciples. And as we look through the scriptures and we look in the, the original Greek of the word judgment, there's a couple different words used, but the word for judgment in Greek is, is krisis. And krisis has this, this connotation of almost like a word picture of a wedge. And the wedge is dividing. That's what judgment does, right? Judgment has never brought people closer together. You judge me, and now I just feel like I want to hug you. No, no, it we push back. We stiff arm. Oh, or, or when someone judges you, going, oh, Oh, we're doing that. Let me tell some things that I've noticed about you. Like we, we, we fight judgment with judgment. It's the wedge and it just drives us apart. Crisis. I would say we have a crisis crisis because judgment makes unity impossible. And if you haven't seen the word unity anywhere in God's scripture, you hadn't been reading it much. Again and again and again, God's prayer for us is unity. Paul's encouragement for us is unity, unity, unity. One God, one faith, one baptism, just as you called by one Lord, one Savior, Jesus Christ. Unity is impossible if we're busy judging. So when we judge, we drive a wedge. This is an epidemic that has to be uh, drawn to our attention. One way to shed light on it, I'll tell a medical history story. In the 1800s, there was a, a Hungarian physician and scientist named Ignaz Philip Semmelweis. Fun name to say. Semmelweis. Dr. Semmelweis uh, was, was manager of a hospital, and he was recognizing that the, the mortality rate of moms who gave birth to their babies was way, way, way too high. There, there was an incredible, um, terrible phenomenon of moms coming to give birth to their babies and then not getting to go home and nurse their babies because they died at the hospital. It became such a, uh, such a, a dangerous situation that most moms, most pregnant moms said, no way am I going to the hospital. Give me a midwife at home because it's way safer. And it was, the statistics were saying you had a much better chance of having a healthy baby, healthy mom if you just stayed home and had a midwife. Now Dr. Semmelweis is very distraught by this, going, he can't figure out why is this terrible phenomenon? What's up? So he took some time off, time off to, to rest and to research and try to figure this thing out. And while the doctor was out, there was more healthy moms and healthy babies in the hospital. And so he goes into research mode and he finds something that we see as common sense, something that we can read on the little sign in the bathroom of every restaurant restroom 
Yes, all employees must wash hands. See, in the 1800s, doctors didn't understand germs. And so Dr. Semmelweis starts to get on this germ theory, beginning to realize if you wash your hands, you won't spread germs from one person to another. Because Dr. Semmelweis in a research hospital would often be like dissecting a diseased corpse and they get called to go deliver a baby. Or treating someone with a yellow fever and then go directly to deliver a baby. Transferring all those germs to the next person. And so can you imagine the pain you would feel knowing that your hands, where you're trying to be a, a healer, your hands have actually caused the death of many. Can you imagine the pain and then can you imagine the urgency with which you would try to tell other people, other doctors, you've got to wash your hands. You have no idea what you're doing. But Dr. Semmelweis got increasingly outspoken when other doctors would not listen to him because he kept being shunned. It's because the medical world didn't believe in, what, germs? What, these microscopic things we can't see? Hogwash. And so he was shunned, and he was shunned to the point where he was eventually driven to a mental asylum. And in that mental asylum, he was beaten by the guards, and 14 days later, he died from an infection in his hand. True story, tragic story. And I think we're living in the same kind of story if we fail to realize, I'm not talking about germs now anymore, right? We're talking about judgment. There's a judgment on our own hands that we don't recognize. And we think, well, I just washed my hands. Well, Pilate tried that. If we look at uh, Matthew's account of the Pilate experience, Pilate says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere with the, the Jewish religious leaders, going nowhere with the crowd, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. And like Pilate, we consider ourselves clean. We judge ourselves to be clean. But perhaps the question is best presented in the form of an old hymn. I want to sing a question, and if you know the answer, will you sing it back to me? The question is this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Sing this together. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Amen. That feels rich enough that we could go eat turkey now. <laughs> if y'all vote me on it, I'll go ahead, but I got two pages left of stuff to cover. No, I'll preach on. Thank you, thank you, Wade. I will then, because Wade said I could. So when we come to a moment like that, in a hymn like that, we, there was no division right now, right? Voices joined together. Maybe you're new to church. Go, I didn't know the words of that song. You will because we're going to keep singing it because the truth is eternal. We're all dirty, and nothing can wash away the, the guilt of the sin of the stain on our hands except for the blood of Jesus that he shed for us. And so when we come to a moment when we think we're better than someone else, like we saved ourselves or we pulled ourselves by our own bootstraps, Jesus reminds us again and again we come to him. He is the only one that cleans us. So do we think we're better than anyone else? 
No, but we've been forgiven. And so from that place of forgiveness, we want to tell others. Like Dr. Simmelweis, realizing the disease of spreading germs, we're recognizing the disease of spreading judgment. And we're like, we can't have this. There has to be a better way. Because of this incredible gift we've been given, this gift of being forgiven of the sins, this forgiveness is a gift of God so that no one can boast about it, right? And if we can't boast about the salvation that we receive from God, it would go to reason also that we cannot judge those who have not received the gift yet. If they act like sinners because they don't know Jesus, we can't judge them based on their behavior if they don't have the belief that he is the Son of God who comes to save the world. But we love to point fingers, go, how could they? Because they don't know Jesus yet. So like the doctors of the early 1800s, like our, our dirty hands, it's our judgment. And like our, our, our judgment is dangerous because the more we do it, the more natural it becomes. We have a natural judgmental mindset. Like knee-jerk judgments just become an instinct. Because it's easier to judge someone than it is to listen to them, talk to them, forgive them, get to know them, hear their story. It's easier to judge someone about the speck in their own eye than it is to look at the log in our own eye. Remember that when Jesus is talking, how, how, how can you try to help your brother and notice the speck in his eye when you got a log in your own eye? So first take out the log in your own eye, then, then just let your brother deal with his own thing, right? If you read it that way, no, that's wrong. So then you can help your brother with his own. If you've been a little tense in, in what I've been saying so far, you're going, when's he going to talk about you've got to help, encourage, rebuke. There's got to be a place for that. You can't just say, well, you take care of yourself and I'll take care of myself and hopefully we all see Jesus in the middle. We get there on our own. No, so then you can help your brother with a speck in his own eye. Like there's a repent. We need to repent and then help lead others to repentance. Your homework, if you want to look in this through the scriptures, especially the New Testament, see Jesus again and again, everyone he interacts with. How is he leading them to repentance? Like Peter. Peter messed up big. Jesus leads him to repentance, not a judgment. How could you, Peter? There's a woman caught in adultery. He doesn't say, well, how could you? No, he says, he was without sin. You could throw the first stone. And no one stays except for Jesus because Jesus was perfect. He had no sin. But he said, I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more. Then again, the life of Paul, the apostle Paul, who deserved the wrath of God, but he was shown the mercy of God's grace and Paul goes on and he, he teaches this to his young protege, Timothy. We'll look at a passage in first Tim, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul, again, is expert on judgment, gives this incredible encouraging words like, how do we help others who need God's help without being judgmental? Pay attention here. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead? And because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience. With great patience. Someone needs to hear it one more time. With great patience and teaching. So who's going to judge? It says it right there. Someone's going to judge. I volunteer. I'm good at it. No, no, no. God, his son, they're going to be the judges. 
So judgment might seem easier, might seem faster than, oh my goodness, Lord, can you imagine how much time it's going to take to correct someone? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. I'd rather just judge them and get it over with. But then you don't go anywhere. You're just stuck and you drive a wedge. So we're going to follow Paul's instruction. Remember, Paul that knew what it was like to be a judge with great patience, teaching. Why? Because a day is coming, a day when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. That's his job. If you think about it, I think this is absolutely fascinating. Think about the living and the dead. I don't know necessarily what happened to Pilate afterwards. He just makes a brief appearance in Scripture. But think about this. Pontius Pilate and Jesus Christ, they're going to see each other again on a judgment day. Except they're going to switch seats. Pilate, who once sat in the judgment seat. And you might say, well, he had a judgment seat. I don't have a judgment seat. Maybe the judgment seat looks like whatever seat you're sitting in. Pilate had a judgment seat. He's going to switch seats with Jesus. Jesus is going to judge. On the day of judgment, Jesus will judge the one who judged him. Like Pontius Pilate, right? We see just a little bit of him in the scripture, a little bit in some of the other historical documents like Josephus. Um, And we don't know much about what happened to him. We know that he judged Jesus. He disregarded the strong warning of his wife. He caved in to appease the loud and angry crowd. And Pilate failed to recognize the truth, even though the way, the truth, and the life was standing right in front of him. Now, if you allow me to get ahead of myself just a little bit, I want to look at the verses in the next part that we're going to study next week in the Gospel of John. Because it sheds light so perfectly on what we're talking about here. If you allow me to get ahead of myself, we look at Jesus who's being judged, and then from his very own cross, he's asked me to make a judgment call on someone. Like as the, the crowds are around him, they're hurling insults on him. And, and there's two thieves right next to Jesus. They're crucified, one on his right and one on his left. That's what it says as we look at John chapter 19 going forward. Just a little bit, just two more verses if you allow me. 17 and 18 says, carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull. He was in the place of judgment. Now he's in the place of the skull called Golgotha. And there they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And Jesus serves as a judge from his cross because while one of the criminals continues hurling insults on him, one of the criminals recognizes that he deserves the judgment he's got. He even says it, we deserve this judgment. Basically, he knew his life was bad enough. He deserved the death penalty. He was not clouded with his vision by judgment. He could see clearly enough also to know that the one who had the power to truly forgive him and give him eternal life was right next to him. He recognized him even though he was beaten and bloody and on an old rugged cross. But he says to him, you know these words, and these are words we should all speak at least once in our life. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This criminal could see what Pilate could not see. This criminal could see what the angry religious leaders could not see. Even though those, those religious leaders, they had most of the Old Testament committed to memory. Even those, those old, teach, old, old teachers, could, they saw Jesus in action. They saw him forgiving and healing and multiplying food. But they couldn't see that he was the Son of God. They couldn't see that he had a kingdom to come. And if we were playing judgment on this criminal on the cross, throwing up a a last-minute deathbed wish, in our own judgment, we might say, 
too bad, so sad, too little, too late. Should have thought about that when you're making a mess of your life. How does Jesus respond? Jesus responds, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Amen. And if you can imagine this, this forgiven criminal, as he enters into paradise, he enters into the kingdom of God. What if he's questioned? What if someone says, why should you be allowed entrance? He's really only got one response. The man on the cross in the middle said I could come in. I hope this gets us excited about next week's message. And I, I hope this gets us to take an honest look at how we see Jesus and the people he loves so much. And so let's close with the verse where we started. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, because you and you alone, you are holy, holy, holy. We deserve your judgment. We deserve your wrath. Each and every one of us have gone our own way. We've gone astray. And then we pass judgment on others. And we've even passed judgment on you because we think we would do a better job or we think a loving God should do things differently. But Father, will you give us your grace? Will you be patient with us? Will you send your Holy Spirit to stir in our hearts that we would have a, a prompting when we see ourselves falling into judgment, but we would instead be led by you that we would lead others to repentance. We would encourage, teach with great patience, patience that can only come from you. So Father, help us. We love you and we need you. We thank you for your word and the ability to gather and to study. And pray you take this word with us that we keep on digging. We love you and it's through Christ we pray. Amen.